chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. Um, a number of weeks ago, when I said that uh, we're going to do Exodus, and I was going to try to uh, do all 40 chapters in 15 weeks, uh, th- this is what makes it challenging. We're looking at chapters 7 through 11 today. Um, and part of that is we don't need to take every single week and go over every single plague because I think that would get it'd be kind of drudgery and would kind of be discouraging uh, for the next 10 weeks. And so we're going to take nine of them today. The big one comes next week when we look, over, uh, look at the Passover, but we're going to be in, uh, in Exodus 7 through uh, 11 today. So let's pray. And then we'll, uh, we'll see what God has in store for us this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, what we don't know would you impart, Lord. What we are not would you change. Would you use your word and the words uh, from my mouth to be pleasing to you, to change the hearts and minds of all that are here this morning. And God, we just ask your blessing on this, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, it was one of the most iconic movie scenes of the late 1980s. A group of criminals had committed this crime, but it's obvious that the jig is up. They're busted. They're running for their lives from this mysterious crime fighter. Most of them get away, but one actually gets caught by this mystery figure, and the figure grabs him by the, by the shirt, and he hangs him over the side of a building, and the guy's fearing for his life, and he says, please don't kill me. And this mysterious figure says, I'm not going to kill you. I want you to tell your friends about me. So the, the crook ends up saying, well, what are you? Not who are you, but what are you? Does anybody know what happens here? What does he say? I'm Batman. Batman. Yeah. He announces who he is. Thank you. We have some great cultured folks here. I love that. That's great. And he he throws him on the the ledge, and Batman jumps off that long edge, and he flies away. And it's pretty easy to see what Bruce Wayne is doing under the guise of Batman here. He is desiring criminals to know who he is, not just by his name, but by his ability. His ability to fight crime and to protect the innocent. And when the name Batman was to be uttered, he wanted criminals to cower in fear that Batman is coming. You know, the the identity of of Batman representing his actions, it's not too far off uh, from how God wants us to know him. God has revealed himself prior to this passage to Moses in the burning bush, and uh, he has revealed himself not by some generic name, but he has revealed himself as Yahweh, uh, a name that would be so holy to his people that they wouldn't even want to utter it uh, in, in coming years. And it is in that name and in the actions that he promised to do that he sends Moses back into Egypt on this global mission mission to help his people know him, not by name, but by his saving acts, and to help uh, his enemies know him by his judgments. So chapter 7 through 11 are perhaps some of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible, because not only does it get 
us to see God's great love for his people and the extent that he will go in order to save them, but it also shows the fierce nature of a warrior God that will go to great lengths to protect his people from danger. These are chapters that, that bring comfort to God's people and to the others it brings moral revulsion. It asks the questions, is God fair? It asks, does he play favorites? Do his judgments fit the crime? And it's those questions that we answer today. We recognize God as the holy God and we see the seriousness of sin. So if there's an overarching principle that, verse, that chapters 7 through 11 show us, it is that Yahweh, the Lord God, wants us to know that He is God and that there is no other. And the way that we do that first is exactly that. Recognize Him, recognize God as the only God. Now, there are a few ways that God shows Himself to be the true God. And um, the first is here that, that you could say that Pharaoh was, was a man of his own time, uh, a man before his time. He would fit right in to our culture today. Uh, I, I think that there's a tendency in Christian, cult, in Christian culture to believe that our world is going more and more atheistic, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, we live in a time that, statistically speaking, people are more spiritual than they've ever been. But what's different is, is that people today define spirituality for themselves. Someone may consider them spiritual, they may themselves spiritual, but they may believe in a higher power, but that higher power is much more defined by the individual than by some institution. Just go and ask any person, who is God to you? And you're going to get a whole plethora of answers. Uh, you know, except the cardinal rule is that you can't let your concept of God uh, intrude on theirs. And, and our pantheistic culture won't allow us to infiltrate who our God is on them. Now, Pharaoh was a spiritual man. Egypt had an established religion that, uh, that was pantheistic. They had a God for almost everything. Yet here was Moses and Aaron coming to Pharaoh with this foreign deity that threatened to take away his labor force. Pharaoh was in love with the gods that did for him what he wanted, but he did not want anything to do with this Yahweh. And that is precisely why Yahweh intervenes. Look at what Isaiah chapter 45 says. This is, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. So the Lord looks around and sees these counterfeit gods of the Egyptians and he says, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 hold on. Why are you pursuing these things that aren't real when you have the true God right here in your midst? 
And really, we're no different than Pharaoh here. Every one of us has some foreign god that we tend to, to, uh, to lean towards. For some of us, it's money, power, sex, relationships, stuff. And oftentimes, we decide to pursue these things, and the Lord intervenes. He brings us into situations by which we are confronted with him, and that is exactly what he does with Pharaoh. He uh, continually, Yahweh tells Moses that uh, this Pharaoh will know who the Lord is through his actions. And in these plagues, we find that Pharaoh continues to reject the Lord and commit himself to these false gods. And so God is using that rejection to be the catalyst by which the Egyptians will know that He is the Lord. Pharaoh will not give up his deities. And so what does the Lord do? He goes to war. And specifically, He goes to war on Pharaoh's gods. Every plague in these chapters are a direct attack upon Egyptian gods. You'll notice in chapter 7, 14 through 25, the Nile turns to blood. The Nile for the Egyptians was the source of life. It is by uh, the place by which everything that they had was derived. It was, it was <laughs> no pun intended, it was the lifeblood of the nation. And also, it was believed that Hopi was the fertility god of the Nile. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, a swarm of frogs come up out of the Nile. Now, in, in Egyptian culture, there was a god called Heket. It was a fertility goddess, and it had the head of a frog. And this goddess was responsible for helping women in childbirth, and it also controlled the population of frogs. But as you can see in the text there, this god has absolutely no power over what Yahweh is doing in the land. In chapter 8, 16 through 19, and, and 20 through 32, there's gnats and flies. The gnats come up out of the ground. It goes against Get, the, the god of the ground. Flies. Now, we don't exactly know what that, that, that word uh, it flies in Hebrew necessarily uh, um, uh, points toward. They think maybe it was more like beetles uh, because um, there were a lot of, uh, of beetles depicted in monuments and there was a god named Kefir who was a god of resurrection and he was in the form of a beetle. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, the livestock of Egypt die. The bull in Egypt was a symbol of fertility. It's interesting that most of these gods have something to do with fertility. Hathor, the goddess of love, had the head of a cow. You might say she was a holy cow, but that's a joke for another time. In, not, in chapter 9, 8 through 12, there are boils that break out. And notice in, in, cha in chapter 9, verse 8, when God instructed Moses, he said, Take the soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. This is an affront to the priests. 
Because what the, free, what the priests would often do is they would take ashes and they would throw the ashes into the air as a sign of the blessing of the gods. But now these ashes that are getting thrown up in the air are rather a sign of a curse. And further, this is showing justice against the Egyptians because the very dust that comes out of the kiln is exactly where all the bricks that the Israelites had been enslaved under put the bricks in in order to bake. God is using the Egyptian slavery now, the Israelite slavery, against Egypt. And the priests and the magicians, they're so busy suffering they can't even attempt to do anything. Notice in chapter 9, verses 13 through 55, a hail storm breaks out. Now, you see in the hail that these plagues continually get worse and worse and worse as they go on. Newt was the sky goddess, the goddess that provided rain when it needed rain, or perhaps uh, dryness when there needed to be dryness. And you see that there is no match for Yahweh here. You've all seen hail. You all know, especially farmers, how devastating hail can be to your crops. So not only is this a challenge to Newt, but it is also a challenge to the agricultural life of Israel. It's completely destructive for most of the crops. The crops that were left over and saved, the Lord takes care of in the eighth plague, locusts. Look in chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. In the locusts, God has taken on all sorts of things. He's taking on the God of the fields, the God of the crops, the God of life, the God of grain, the God of the field, and the protector against, get this, pests. And showing his sovereignty over this. And in chapter 10, verses 21 through 29, there's darkness in the whole land for three days. One of the pinnacles of Egyptian worship was sun worship. And the sun god to the Egyptians was the god Ray. And here is uh, the Lord putting Ray away for three days, a clear indication that Yahweh is superior. Now we need to remember these plagues in order to see God rightly. Look at Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not Give to another. So in light of all the substitute gods that we put in our lives to compete against God, one thing we need to know and need to remember is that the Lord will never play second fiddle. He is the Lord. And he wants to be priority number one in our lives. In fact, it's not even a request. It is a demand. I am the Lord your God. You shall have how many before him? None. 
Further, we see that Yahweh is the mighty creator. You don't want to be in a cosmic battle against the Lord because when God fights, He doesn't fight fair. He is the creator God. He is the creator of everyone and everything. And because He is the creator, He has sovereignty over all of His creation and He can use His creation to do His bidding whether for good or as a weapon. The idea of the plagues here is that God uses all of his resources at his disposal, land, sky, and sea. Now, many skeptics will try to uh, push off these plagues and say that, uh, that all of these are a natural result of each other. Because of the Nile turning to blood, this happens, and then this happens, and this happens. But what the skeptics fail to look at is God having sovereignty over the timing of these things. There are precise markers of time that the Lord says these plagues will happen and when they will finish. There cannot be coincidences. So the only conclusion is, is that Yahweh is the mighty creator and he has all of creation at his disposal. But also we see that Yahweh is the might, is the holy judge. There is a sense in which God in the ten plagues is doing really two things. That Pharaoh, representing the entire world here, would know God as the only God. And he's also judging Pharaoh for his sin. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, God has blessed the Hebrews. He has fulfilled one half of his promise to them. He has made them a multitude of people, and they are increasing greatly, and Pharaoh looks out at it, and Pharaoh tries to stop it. And if you remember how Pharaoh tries to stop it, he tries to stop it with slavery, and he tries to stop it with infanticide, forced abortion. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1, remember when, when God created everything in the world, it says that there was darkness and the world was, was, was void and without form. And what is the ninth plague? Darkness. God is completely undoing creation to Pharaoh here because Pharaoh is showing himself as the anti-creator. And through these plagues, we see that God is uh, judging Egypt by degenerating the world back into absolute chaos. The water doesn't provide life anymore. Animals are not providing food anymore. There's darkness. And I know it's taboo these days to talk about God's judgment. But we need to face reality. Because life often happens the same way. Tim Chester, in his commentary on Exodus, says this, We were made to live in obedience to God and dependence of Him. But Romans 1.18-32 says that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped created things rather than the Creator. And when we reject God... We are unmade. Our psychological and physical lives become disordered. The result is emotional darkness, 
mental breakdown, relational conflict, and physical addictions. Sickness has entered the world, and we are heading for death, the ultimate act of uncreation. Egypt is a picture of life in meltdown under God's judgment. But as much as we see God as the holy judge, we also see Him as the gracious Savior. See Him as the gracious Savior. Throughout Scripture, and especially in these passages, God makes a distinction. Israel, He redeems. Egypt, He rejects. Why? We've already seen that Egypt has some pretty heinous crimes, right? Forced infanticide? Human slavery? But what made Israel so special? Were they sinless? Did they have something more pure? Were they more holy? Were they better behaved? No. So the question is, why does Israel get freedom and why does Pharaoh get judgment? And the answer here is that God chose to give Israel mercy. And we can't get to the bottom of this section without seeing how this is dealt with in the New Testament. And Paul takes up this very issue in Romans chapter 9 concerning this very passage. Um, Read with me here along in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is a tough passage for a lot of folks. But Paul makes the point here that salvation does not depend on our effort. It has not so much to do with a decision as it does God's mercy. If left to ourselves, we would never choose the Lord. We love our sin too much. So why does God leave Pharaoh at a, with a hard heart and at the same time softening others? so that none of us can ever assume that our salvation depends on us, but rather on God's mercy. Israel was no less sinful or deserving of judgment than Egypt. But why was Israel spared? Because of God's mercy. Was God wrong in showing Israel mercy? Yes or no? 
No. When he judged Egypt, do you know what he gave Egypt? Justice. Was God wrong in giving Egypt justice? No. God is not wrong in either case. So when we look at the plague narrative here, we find to be God to be the only true God who has sovereignty over all of creation, who is a holy judge and a merciful Savior. Why doesn't he, who doesn't save us according to anything that we think, say, or do, but because of his mercy, and that all goes for his glory. So we first of all need to recognize God as the only God. But the second thing is, is that we also need to know the deceitfulness of sin. Know the deceitfulness of sin. I once worked at Chick-fil-A, um, partly uh, because when you live in the South and you're a student, that's just sort of the Christian thing that you do. You go and you work at Chick-fil-A. Um, but in our seminary employment guide, they advertise the position as offering tuition reimbursement. And so as a seminary student, or even as a college student, whatever it is, you see those words, tuition reimbursement, and it piques your curiosity, and you want a job like that. The implication was that it was much like how UPS does it. You work, you provide the copy of your bill that you've paid, they pay you back for your tuition. And I, I, I didn't want to ask about this program during my interview because I don't want to sound greedy, right? But when I started working, I asked about it. And uh, what I ended up finding out that Chick-fil-A doesn't actually do tuition reimbursement. Rather, what they do is there is a scholarship available. And I say that in the singular. There is a scholarship available to one employee in the entire national system. And it turns out that is what the advertisement was implying when it said tuition reimbursement. And I'm going to be honest with you, that didn't start my, my um, employment off on a good start for, in my mind. Because I felt cheated and I felt deceived. I thought I was being promised one thing, but it was really just a, a, a deception to get me to come to work at a place with awesome food, but without tuition reimbursement. That is, friends, how sin works. It promises you one thing, and it delivers something completely different. And Pharaoh is a case study in the deceitfulness of sin. His pride had led him to believe that he had the right and he had the power to enslave people for his benefit. And now that he and his system of religion are being challenged, you can see how sin works out in our lives. Three times the text tells us that Pharaoh's heart becomes hard, 
Three other times, it tells us that Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it doesn't seem to matter to him how his pride was affecting uh, his nation or his people. And the more that he hardened his heart, the more calamity came upon his people and upon his nation, suffering at the hands of an angry God. And he, his heart gets so hard that in chapter 10, verse 28, this is what he says to Moses. Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. What's the result here in verse 29? Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. So notice that through Moses, Yahweh is showing uh, Pharaoh an inside look at one way in which God judges people. And it's a way that, that we wouldn't necessarily think about. He gives Pharaoh what he wants. He says, you want that stuff? Go ahead and have it. Have it to your heart's delight. You know, in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, this is what Paul writes. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Romans 1.26, just a couple verses later. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Have you ever thought about one way that God tries to get our attention and we just won't listen? Is that he lets us go deeper and deeper into the issues that we have. And it's not hard to see why God would do this. When he lovingly warns us, he provides certain signs, perhaps life circumstances, to show us our need of change. And when we refuse to listen, when we come up with all sorts of excuses, all sorts of reasons, and we continue doing these things that displease him, that hurt others, and damage our lives, he ends up saying, all right, you want that? Go ahead and have it. It's like the dad that catches his son smoking. It's the son you want to smoke? I'm going to make you smoke an entire pack right here, right now. And the kid smokes so many, he ends up getting sick and doesn't want it anymore. That is what God is doing here. And the issue is that because of our sinful nature, we go deeper and deeper into our sin. And the plagues here grow in intensity, and it shows that the more we harden our hearts, the deeper it goes. The more hurt, the more devastation it creates. And sadly, many of us either don't care about the devastation around us that we are creating, or we don't even realize it. You may think that your sin doesn't affect anyone. But until you see your need for help and try to expel it from your life, it will continue to deceive you. It will continue to bring disaster. You need to know the deceitfulness of sin. And when you do, by God's grace you'll learn one thing. You 
can't change on your own. You can't. Sin is not only deceiving, but it's also powerful. Therefore, you don't just need help. You need someone to step in and do it for you. And that brings us right to our final point. And that is that we need to look to the plague of the cross of Christ. Look to the plague of the cross of Christ. What the plagues show us boils down to two things. Signs of God's judgment and signs of God's merciful salvation. God is not mocked. There are penalties for defying, ignoring, belittling God. There are penalties for hurting others, for committing adultery, lying, stealing, murdering. And those plagues are a foretaste to those who deny God and their sin. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Paul tells us that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And on that day, frogs, gnats, flies, hail, boils will seem desirable, maybe uh, minuscule compared to what is to come. Because where the plagues of Egypt are temporary, God's judgment is eternal. And the sad reality is, is that every one of us deserves this. Every one of us have defied God. Every one of us have sinned in one way or another. And that judgment is what is to come unless we look to the cross. We are all plagued with sin and judgment, but Christ on the cross bore our plagues and our judgment for us. He took it on our behalf so that we can be saved. Every word, every thought, every deed that we've ever committed was placed on Christ. His goodness, His righteousness was given to us. Our sinfulness, our plagues were placed on Him. What an unjust, amazing, great thing that God did for us in that exchange. And after dying on the cross, he was raised from the dead three days later to show his victory over our sin and over death. God wants us to know that he is God and that there is no other. And he does that primarily in Jesus Christ. Will you seek to know God by repenting and Trusting in Jesus, not just to remove the curse of sin, not just to remove the future possibility of judgment, but to make you completely new, to give you a new lease on life, to give you new desires, to desire the right things, to desire Christ, to desire life. God wants to know you, to, you to know Him 
Will you take that step this morning and trust in Christ? You know, Bruce Wayne may have wanted all the criminals in Gotham City to know that he was Batman. But the Lord God wants us to know that he is Yahweh and that there is no other. And he does that through judgment and salvation. And today, by his grace, through faith, you can know him as he truly is by receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these plagues are um, nothing that we desire. We look on these plagues and different things that your actions have accomplished in, in your word and and maybe we say that might be a bit harsh, but maybe that's because we don't see you as a holy God, completely set apart, completely pure. But God, you're also good. Your word tells us that you were slow to anger, that you were abounding in steadfast love, that you don't hold our sin against us when we are in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, wherever we are today, would you forgive us of our sin? If we've never known Jesus before, if we've never had him be a part in our life, Lord, would you help us to receive him today? To pray, Jesus, save me. I want to follow you. I want to be made new. Forgive me of my sin. And may we follow him. And Father, for those of us that maybe need a renewal, would you do that today? Would we see Yahweh as he truly is? A loving, merciful, patient, kind, consistent God, but will, one that will by no means clear the guilty. Would you help us to receive that mercy today through Jesus Christ, who suffered, died, and was buried on our behalf? And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, would you stand with us in the worship team as we... Respond to your word.
Oh 